Hey, I'm Osman Faruqi, and this is The Culture, a weekly show about pop culture, arts, entertainment, and the perfect Christmas song. 25 years ago, Paul Kelly, one of Australia's greatest songwriters, released How to Make Gravy, a song that has since become a staple at many family Christmas gatherings. How to Make Gravy is full of anecdotes and snapshots about summer in Australia. The hot weather, Christmas roasts, dancing, and of course, family reunions. It's a song that perfectly encapsulates what this time of year is supposed to be about. I sat down with Paul Kelly to talk about How to Make Gravy, the inspiration behind the song, how much it mirrors Paul's own family Christmases, and why it seems to become more and more popular every year. Yeah, I'm off. And it's going to start the phone. So there's a backup. Hang on. My voice messages. I made a record on this phone, so come on, we should be all right. <laughs> Which record? 40 Days. that came out last year. Honoured <laughs> to be recording this interview on that phone as well. <laughs> so, Paul, it is... Amazingly, 25 years since How to Make Gravy was released back in 1996. And I've actually wanted to talk to you about this track for years. It has a lot of meaning for me personally. It really helped unlock what Christmas meant and what it was really all about. I grew up in regional Australia, this town called Port Macquarie on the mid-north coast. Yeah. And Christmas is a big deal there. There was a Christmas pageant every year. And I played in the community orchestra and I performed in the Christmas pageant every year. And even though I knew all the Christmas songs and traditions off by heart, it never really connected with me, probably because I'm a Muslim kid from a family that didn't celebrate Christmas, uh, especially the religious component. Mm -hmm. But as I got older, I started to experience this different side of Christmas, largely through partners who were who were Aussie and Christmas became this annual family get-together in the middle of summer where people who you hadn't seen all year came around, cooked a roast and shared stories. And it was one of those Christmases that I heard How to Make Gravy for the first time. And to me, that was the moment that Christmas made sense. You know, this is one song that helped sum up what an Aussie Christmas is all about, this yearning for belonging, for family, the food, and it helped a Muslim kid like me really fit in and understand this institution mm -hmm. that had felt so alien to me. I wonder if you ever thought that that's the impact that that song would have when you wrote it 25 years ago. Well, you never really, um, you never really know what sort of impact songs will have. They're kind of out of your, out of your hands once you make them and, and send them out. And they often surprise you. And How to Make Gravy did. I mean, I sort of know the circumstances and how it came about, but the actual writing of it, I don't really sort of remember, but I know it happened pretty quick. Can you tell me what you remember about how the song came about? What made you want to sit down and write a Christmas song? I was trying to write a song for um, a Christmas charity record. I've been asked to write a song and I've been stuck on it for a while and I was thinking, how do I write about Christmas? It's been done to death. I started thinking, well, maybe if I write from the point of view of someone who can't be at Christmas, that, that may be a way of intensifying the feeling of what Christmas is. When you can't be there, you, you sort of long for it. And then my next thought was, well, why can't that person be there? And then my next thought was, oh, they're in prison. Hello, Dan. It's Joe here. And then that was a key for me to write the song. I hope you're keeping well. And it happened pretty quickly after that. 
It's the 21st of December. I was also aware after it was written that there was a lot of my family sort of Christmases in it. We have, I'm from a big clan, Catholic from my family, but you know, the clan sort of got much wider than that with uh, all the people we've married and partnered with over the years. It's always been a big family occasion. Won't you kiss my kids on Christmas Day? There's eight of us and lots of cousins, children and our children's children. So there's been some Christmases where there's all of us together than somewhere we're in different cities. But it's even a small Christmas in our family is big. I guess the brothers are driving down from Queensland. And there's always, you know, there's always some extras, you know, some strays or people who, who uh, can't, haven't got anywhere else to go for Christmas. So they come. They say it's going to be 100 degrees, even more maybe. Generally, we bring a plate or we decide on a, a theme of food for and everyone sort of cooks to that. One year it might be sort of Asian and, you know, curries and noodles and things like that. Another time it might be more Mediterranean. But um, there's that chaos because people, some people turn up with things cooked. Some people turn up with things need finishing off and then we're all fighting, you know, jostling for space in the, in the kitchen. All that. We, it's a fairly happy chaotic occasion and uh, my, my family and I we all sort of like each other so we we, we, <laughs> we just, so uh, we uh, we um, you know so we like we like to get together I, I kind of want to ask you a little bit about the family Christmas and, and your own experiences and how they relate to the song. But before we get there, you mentioned that you know the circumstances through which the song came about. I think it was this charity record, Spirit of Christmas, produced by uh, Lindsay Field. That's um, right. The, the writing of the song, like, was there any of these ideas, this story, this structure that was kicking around before that that you could lean into? How, how did that actually go about? Or, or did you have to sit down and think when you were asked to contribute to this record what you would what you'd be contributing? I did think for a long time, but like I said before, I, m- most of my thinking was like, I'm stuck, I'm stuck. How am I going to write a Christmas song? A little mild f- feeling of panic. There was a bit of time, I think uh, Lindsay approached me pretty early on. You know, I'd, I'd actually, he asked me just to do a Christmas song and I'd chosen uh, Christmas Must Be Tonight, another song, but that was taken. So yeah, right. that's when he said, oh, why don't you try and write your own? I thought, okay. That, I thought, every songwriter... At some stage, has to write a Christmas song, so it's time, you know. Been writing songs for, well, back then I've been writing songs for, well, 20 years, so, you know, it's, it's time to write a Christmas song. So I did, you know, think, right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it, and then I got stuck. And then uh, I went through those steps I talked about before about how to get into it. Hmm. I didn't have anything written down, um, but that's often the case with my songs, that music is first. Mm. And I start singing or mumbling or making sounds to the music and then, and then um, sort of get the words to match those sounds. So I remember I had the music, I had those chords, which, you know, the very sort of common chords. Been used a lot by other songwriters, including Thunderclap Newman. And I had a sort of uh, kind of, those chords were arranged in a particular order. Hi, this is Peter Luscombe, drummer for Paul Kelly, and I'm just here to chat about the original recording of How to Make Gravy. Paul had 
the chords kicking around and we used to run it at sound check every now and then, but it was pretty uncertain what it was going to be at that point. He'll often have ideas and bring them along to a sound check and we'll play them in a bit and then he may decide later if it's going to be anything. So I sort of had a, I guess what you might call that architecture of a song musically. Mm. And then the rest of it, I don't remember. It's like I had that idea, oh, he's in prison, can't time for Christmas. And he said, look, I've got this song. It's uh, set in prison and it doesn't have a chorus. Um, what do you reckon? Uh, uh, the rest of it I don't remember, which I think means it happened very... I remember it happened quickly. I mean, it sort of it rhymes, but it's a very talk, it's a sort of talky, half singing, mm. half talking song. Hello, Dan. It's Joe here. I hope you're keeping well. I, I do that, you know, quite a bit with other songs, but that sort of probably took it further than, than I'd done before. And the tempo of How to Make Gravy, which is sits around the 94 to 96 BPM mark, is the perfect tempo to lay down uh, rhythmic lyrics that sit beautifully in the groove. And that's kind of the way I think Paul approached a lot of the singing in the verses with Gravy. And um, again, you know, it never went to a chorus. It just sort of... But, and again, this is all the stuff you realise later, because it's like sometimes writing a song, particularly that one, it's like that, that it's something that happens to you. It's not like you're driving it. And I don't want to start sounding like, you know, uh, someone at the Grammy saying, you know, I just, <laughs> God came to me and got thanks for the inspiration and I just, you know, just came to me. But there is something about it, something happens, something, you're in the grip of something and it, so you've just got to f- follow it. That's what's happened with that song. Yeah, it's interesting hearing you mention that lack of the chorus in How to Make Gravy. The whole structure of the song feels pretty untraditional, especially for a song that has become so catchy and and popular. Were you surprised to see how many people connected with it? Yeah, I certainly didn't expect it to be a popular song or a commercial song. It didn't came out um, you know, 25 years ago and then it came out just as a single, wasn't on an album, it didn't get much radio play. But we started playing it pretty early on, the band and I, we really liked playing it. I never, ever have gotten tired of playing that song and there are nights when it is the greatest song on the night, many times. I realised it was because the, the song sort of, again, the song sort of plays itself. The song does have this architecture that works like a chorus. All this stuff I'm saying is, is only from, you know, I didn't know this at the time, it's only when you look back. I was very aware, oh, the song doesn't have a chorus, it's set in prison, you know, that's, that's no, you know, maybe community radio is going to play it, that's about it. <laughs> but but it, it started picking up, over the years it just started picking up play around Christmas and it was a song that we played live, we liked playing it. Give me love to Angus and the Frank and And the reason we liked playing it was that it did have this sort of gear change in it, which is sort of what a chorus is. You know, a chorus mm. gives you that lift. And it's one of those songs that just keeps building throughout. It drops in dynamics for that small part of the verse and then it just keeps going. And from there it just builds. And it's something in the writing, that it, the song just kicks up, keeps kicking up a gear and keeps, keeps going up and up and up. So it's a really fun song to play 
and even on those gigs when like it's a crappy gig and you're tired and you don't feel not feeling that great and the monitors sound like shit and but you're, you're playing anyway that's a, we play that song and it always it lifts us up so it plays us we don't have to play it so much and it's an incredibly uplifting song for people to hear live and it's always towards the end of the set often the last song of the set for us you know in our camp that was a working song that's like that's a song that works you know we, it makes us feel good we can and we could see it every time we played it we, we could see it feel it landing in the audience so we knew th this song works and that's what you know people gig started to call out for it they play that gravy song you know um so yeah build up slowly Those parts of the song where it changes gear, as you say, are kind of a stand-in for, for the chorus. You know, give my love to Angus, that's the bit where you really want to jump out of your chair and just start belting it out. The line that I love to sing, and it annoys the shit out of everyone whenever this song comes on, I just repeatedly yell out and ask, who's going to make the gravy? So, Paul, let me ask you right now on the record, who's going to make the gravy? Well, you know, the thing is... The burden I have, burden now. If there's, gra if there's gravy to be made at, at Christmas, you know, I have to do it. <laughs> and is the recipe? Is it a real recipe? Is that is that what you you do? It's a real recipe. It's the only you know non-fiction part of the song. <laughs> The unusual part of it was that the little bit of tomato sauce, and you know, I've copped a lot of flack from you know, <laughs> from foodie friends. <laughs> what? <laughs> tomato sauce? You know, but uh, okay, you don't have to add tomato sauce, but you know, you make your own gravy. You said it was the only, I guess, biographical bit from the song, but I am curious about that because there are so many details in in the song that seem quite specific. I think. One thing that that really jumped out to me the first time I heard it, and it does every time, is the you know you put on Junior Mervyn and, and push the tables back. You put on Junior Mervyn and push the tables back. And I love the idea of you listening to Police and Thieves at, at family Christmases. Is that was that a real thing, or is that just something that struck you as you were writing the song? Uh, Police and Thieves and, and Junior Mervyn in general is not like sort of uh, a staple at our family Christmases, but. Uh, I think at the time I wrote the song, I was listening to a lot of Junior Mervyn. Um, and I, I still love him. I think that's the greatest track. And that I can just imagine from Junior Mervyn. You know, it was a. It just came because it was a. It was a sort of a rough rhyme, and. And of course, you know, straight away I thought, Police and Thieves, that's perfect. The guy's in prison and he's talking about the song called Police and Thieves. So that was, you know, that just sort of an accident. Uh, we don't particularly play Junior Mervyn. <laughs> there's too much noise. Once Christmas starts, you know, that's it. There's too much noise. I think the music, uh, the, the, the music hardly happens or someone turns it off. Or... I, have, I, have a, I have a theory and you can totally shoot it down. I get a feeling that at the Kelly family Christmas the Pogues' fairy tale of New York gets a bit of a run. It was Christmas Eve, babe. 
Is that a song that you connect with come Christmas time? Oh, I, I love that song, yeah. It reminds me of How to Make Gravy. I think of them in the same sort of secular Christmas tradition, you know, where we're talking about something that's happening about that time, but it's a story about people that has less to do with the, the sacred element, the spiritual element of it, but just what that time means. And and the guys in jail. Hey, guys in jail, yeah. I hadn't, hadn't made that connection. I mean, also, yeah, we recorded um, a song called Arthur McBride on, on the, the Christmas record, and that, that's, again, the only connection to Christmas that song has is that it's taking place on Christmas Day and there's hmm. two Irish lads out for a walk get... Pre- uh, well, they attempted to get press-ganged by some English soldiers and they, they fight them off. Um, how to make gravy is very much, uh, I guess, in the secular tradition of Christmas songs, and that's a very, very rich tradition. I also see it in the tradition of, um, or say the genre. You know, that if you could say there's a genre of Christmas songs about not being there. Mm-hmm. And I realised that again after I'd written it, and um, of course, the, the big daddy of them all, "White I'm Dreaming of a White Christmas," is mm-hmm. is um, about not being there, and that's I think that's part of the enduring power of the song um and then you start you know it's like when you you buy a car and then suddenly you see that car everywhere you go when you drive around it's like i I noticed that now there's lots and lots of songs christmas songs that are about not being there Hmm. you know christmas just ain't christmas with with the one you love by the ojs and uh, the list goes on so that's sort of uh, it's just one of the uh types of christmas songs that are that that i see that as fitting gravy fits into that yeah, and I think it's not, it's obviously not just me, someone who doesn't historically celebrate Christmas that's connected with it, because the song, you know, we've sort of said this a couple of times, but I think it is, it's the significant part of it is it's not about the the pomp and the ceremony of the religious or spiritual side, but it's about these traditions that in their own kind of mundane way, whether that's just everyone coming together at the same house at the same time of year, people bringing the new partners and reflecting on the old ones, the tradition of making gravy has kind of become our stand-in for what historically was religious ceremony. I think as Australia has become more and more secular and more and more agnostic or atheist, that can happen, but like Christmas in terms of what it means, in terms of being there together as a community and having those traditions, the meaning of that isn't going to go away. Yeah, it's, it's very much, it's family get-together is at the heart of it and that's sort of at the heart of the song, I guess, and also all those those tensions between families. And uh, But really the desire to get together, even though you know it's got, it might be, there might be, you know, that uncle you don't like or uh, <laughs> that annoying cousin. Um I mean, I, see, I, I know people who sort of sort of dread Christmas. I mean, there's a, there's, there is a lot of stress leading up to it. I guess that's all the thing, thing about shopping and the, the crowds and getting organising and all that stuff. And then, and then a lot of people say, oh, you know, I have to be with my family on Christmas Day. I don't really want to. But I've always liked being with my family, so that's, Christmas is a big, big part of that. We sort of, a bit like, we're, we're like iron filings. Uh, you know, we, we've any, any excuse to get together will do it. So we often have a big one at Easter or, or uh, you know, around a, a significant birthday. Um, we're sort of scattered around the country, but we, we, try, we try to get there for, the, for those big ones. So mm. that's, that, that, that's sort of where, where I'm coming from. 
We'll be back after a short break. The song got nominated for an aria the year it came out. It resonated immediately, but you would have a better sense of this because I was a kid for the first, you know, few years the song was around. But it really feels like it reached this, it, it got this second life maybe like five, six years ago. And I'm trying to, I've been trying to figure out how and when that happened. The Gravy Day being a thing that started to be covered in the, in the media, both locally and internationally, seems to be from around 2014, 2015, there was this... Twitter account. I don't know if you're aware of it called the Gravy Man that sort of started to go viral. Have you seen that account? Yeah. I saw it at the time. I thought it was hilarious. <laughs> and, uh, um, yeah, there's a few things like that floating around. So I think you're right. I noticed that around the same time. Do you have a sense as to why your music, not just How to Make Gravy, but I think that has been one that has led the charge, seems to have connected with people my generation or even younger? you know, 10, 15, 20, 25 years after a lot of these tracks came out. It just feels like there's a real generational vibe around the music of Paul Kelly, uh, you know, over the last five or 10 years. I mean, I always wanted to, I mean, I guess, you know, as a songwriter, I always wanted to, I always wanted to write songs that last, that uh, I guess that's, that they're built well hmm. uh, and then they, and they last. So it's sort of like, that. that's sort of been my attitude. It may be that... Uh, I like storytelling, and that there's a lot of that in my songs. I, I really, I really don't know why. I guess we went. I was never particularly in fashion when I started, hmm. Yeah, hmm. so never particularly in fashion or out of fashion. I guess just what am I? Just fashion. <laughs> Are you across memes, Paul? Like like internet memes? <laughs> yeah. yeah. There, there's a lot of memes. That, <laughs> the backstage of. You know, a few years back, and someone said, "You, Paul, have you ever heard of Netflix?" <laughs> um, but you know, I'm sorry, you know, I'm sorry, I knew that was gonna. It was but no, gonna you've be... got to ask that stuff. <laughs> Look, I only, only recently became aware of parkour. You know, so, <laughs> yeah, right. So yeah, there's still there's still a lot of stuff I don't know about. But it means, yep. We talk a lot in kind of cultural criticism right now about, you know, songs or TV shows or films or, or just art in general that's very memeable. And you can never tell, right? No one making stuff knows that this is going to be memed. But there's something about your song, and I think it's almost because of how it's this combination of how familiar the the sort of sense of it is and the emotions it evokes as well as these very specific things like there's these memes uh, about about Angus about Joe about gravy that's kind of this theory that I have as to as to why it's it's kind of kicked around and, and gotten even like it's back in the charts every Christmas it gets higher and higher and every year the memes get better and better and it's wild to me that you can make a piece of art you can tell a story from, you know, just when the internet was in its infancy and people are finding ways to readapt little bits of it for a very, very, very online world to create things for TikTok and Instagram. I think uh, it's a testament to, to how compelling the story is, really. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, a, a song or any kind of art is successful if it keeps um, either revealing new meanings or being adapted in, in new ways. So... But again, as you said, you just can't, you really can't plan for that. But I, I mean, I try to write, I'm a pretty, I try to write in plain speech, direct speech. Mm. Um, 
I often, often, my songs are written from a point of view of a, a character in a particular situation, which, which is how to make gravy is. So it's, there is a voice, mm. and often for writing songs I'm following a voice and seeing where it goes, so they're not usually planned. I don't really, I don't really know what I'm doing when I'm writing a song. I can I sometimes look back and say, oh, that's what happened, but I don't know. When I'm in the middle of a song, I don't know necessarily where, where it's going. So that's all that, you know, all that, that stuff's out of my hands. Yeah, no one can control what memes the kids will make either. I've, they meme me sometimes. It's very stressful a lot of the time. But all the memes about you are very nice and sweet. <laughs> that's good. Well, the, the record company asked me to see if I can get on TikTok. But I... <laughs> <laughs> did they really? What did yeah. you say? Uh, I said I'll think about it. But that's, that's my, <laughs> my way of saying no. No, yeah, I will think about it, but. My daughter Memphis and her partner Tom do very funny things on TikTok. So. <laughs> That's great. You were just saying before, it's not just about Christmas, it's not just about belonging, but it's what happens when you're locked out of that. And obviously for the last couple of years, it's been a big theme for the lives of so many people. And in so many ways, this Christmas is going to be the first time many people can be getting together. Does this particular Christmas after two years of the pandemic and lockdowns have special significance for the, the Kelly family Christmas? Uh, for, for us, yes. Uh, we, we had my eldest brother died. Oh, sorry. I didn't mean to go there. Uh, he died last December, just before, you know, long, not long before Christmas. So uh, last Christmas is a, is a blur. I have to remember a bit more about this one. That sounds really, really tough, Paul. I'm sorry. That was Dan's father? Yeah. 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 The heart and soul of us. Yeah. Yeah. And Dan, your nephew, he plays your live shows, right? Yeah. Yeah. So Dan, Dan sometimes plays with the band and sometimes not. Sort of like we have a bit of a squad. Sometimes uh, Ash Naylor plays, it's just Ash plays guitar or sometimes just Dan or sometimes both. But we went out on the road this year we were fortunate to be able to play gigs in July in Queensland and Tassie, mm-hmm. and that was, you know, Dan, Dan came and Ash. We had the whole, the whole band, and the, the shows we're doing uh, this December and into next you know, We've got quite a lot of shows next year that have all been postponed, so we're going to take every, everyone out, you know, because need, everyone needs to work. Yeah. We're all, you know, we're keen, keen to get back and play together, and Dan's part of all that too. Hey, Paul, I'm sure after 25 years you're probably sick of talking about how to make gravy. <laughs> so I really appreciate the enthusiasm uh, that you've brought to the convo. Is there anything else you want to say about the song? I will say that, you know, I do use a few family names in the song, which is somehow... Was, oh, really? Is, I don't know. It's just a habit. I don't know because I obviously, obviously use Dan. Every night when I play the song, you know, I say, hi, Dan, you know. And he's right there next to me. But um, <laughs> Joe's my, my mother's name. Uh, I have a sister called Sheila, but, you know, I sort of use Stella. Uh, there's a Roger in the family, um, but they, they, they don't match the characters. You know, they're just not. Okay. Okay. I guess there must be something to do with names that I'm familiar with that, that when I'm sort of reaching for something, uh, uh, making a song, they, they come in. If they fit, if they fit, you know, the, the metre and the rhyme and, and whatever. They come in, so it's been a bit of a joke that you know I, I stick these names in the songs, but um, 
they forgive me, I think. <laughs> I like the clarification that Roger isn't actually the Roger in the song. No, he knows. <laughs> <laughs> We'll be back after this break. So you've released this new record, Paul Kelly's Christmas Train, and firstly, congratulations, it's it's fantastic, and there's a few specific kind of tracks and feelings on it that I want to talk to you about a little bit more. But maybe just starting a higher level, after doing How to Make Gravy, which is, as we've spoken about, so secular and not really spiritual at all, what made you want to want to do an album that had both kind of the divine, the spiritual and the secular on it? There's a really fascinating mix of songs that just happen to be set at Christmas, as you were saying, and there are songs that are going to be familiar to people that I'm sure people sing in churches. Uh, and, and there's a coverage of a whole bunch of different religions as well. Um, what made you want to tap into that side of things? That was very important important part of the record for me to to have that range um first of all there's so much great christmas music you know uh, the very rich choral and classical tradition as well as the pop tradition is, is great ever since white christmas came out that was a surprise hit bing crosby's white christmas no one expected mm. that a christmas song would be a commercial hit mm. um but once bing did that then you know that all those great american Songwriters, you know, that we call, you know, part of the great American songbook, they all started writing Christmas songs. So we had this very rich pop tradition as well. And it's, of course, it's across all, all cultures and all kinds of music and folk music. So I wanted to, ha- to do a record that could cover as much as that as possible. And that's the reason why, you know, it sort of expanded to a, a double album. I was also really, really wanted to put the, the Jesus and Mary story sort of you know, front and centre of the record or, or a large part of the record because that is the central story of Christmas. And uh, it's often sort of buried under all this other stuff, mm. uh, layers of tinsel, you might say. Or, <laughs> um, uh, so I wanted to make sure that was represented and because there are, again, such, so many great songs in the in, in carols and folk songs um, and pop songs as well featuring Mary and Jesus. And the obvious thing to me, very obvious to me, because I was well aware that the, the Quran has a whole chapter devoted to that story. And I thought, I've got to get, you know, that has to be, that has to be in it. And that's when I approached Walid Ali to sort of, to talk about it. You know, there was, you know, a long back and forth process as we spoke about. I actually was thinking initially I could get someone to Sing, recite it. As you know, the very rich tradition of mm. people singing the Quran. Mm. And um, we went down that path for a while. I talked to a couple of people, and I spoke to, to one person that Wiley'd recommended, and who gave it some serious thought. And I tried to give him all the context as much as possible. The context of you, it'll be um, within a, this other record with pop songs and and uh, Christian songs and so on. But I, I really think it's important to have the Islam story as well. Yeah, not a lot of people know that. I remember that when I was growing up and people were like, oh, you're Muslim, you don't understand Jesus. It's like, no, 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 we have the same story. There's a few details that have changed, but he's very important to us. And the song you have, Surya Mariam, it, it's about, you know, his, his family, his mum. It's really a beautiful inclusion. This was Jesus, the son of Mary. Yeah, the other reason I really like 
like it there is that uh, apart from sort of making a very clear point, there's a, a very strong and respectful tradition in uh, Islam of Jesus. He's honoured as a prophet. Those, those verses are so beautiful. I, mean, I can't imagine how beautiful they are in, in the original Arabic. I, I've, I've heard that they're so beautiful. But, you know, the parallels are, are very striking. An angel appears and said, says you're going to conceive a baby, and Mary says, how can I, you know? I've never been with a man. And then, but then the, what I really like about those verses is that then it, it talks about her, the, the pains of her childbirth, the agony of her childbirth. She is in serious pain and she wants to die. You know, and that's like uh, that's somehow in the Christian story. I think they skipped that bit. It's like <laughs> you know, there's the um, they went to the stable. They couldn't couldn't get in. You know, there's a hardship there. They they couldn't get in mm. at the inn, and uh, they found the stable and the manger. Then bum, baby Jesus, baby Jesus <laughs> appeared. So I don't know. If, I may have, you know, there's a lot of stuff I don't know. There's, there may be Christian stories about the, the pain Mary went through, but that really struck me. Those verses about her, her in a lot of pain, and I thought, well, that's another. You know, that's another. I wonder how all these different sort of angles or prisms of, of this story on on the record, um, as well as you know the great, you know the great secular songs and uh, and those classical songs, carols. Another religious song you have on the album, a religious song that isn't about Christmas, is the Jewish song Shalom Aleichem. Can you? Tell me about that song. Yeah, well, again, I wanted to in- include something to do with Judaism on the record because Jesus was Jewish and very steeped in in Jewish law. He actually, you know, he preached from the from the, the Torah and so on. So, well, you know, what we need to have uh, would it should be good to have that represented on the record as well. My first thought was. Uh, well, I knew Hanukkah was Hanukkah's around the same time. I thought, well, maybe we can find a Hanukkah song. But fortunately, well, you know, the more I looked into that, there was, you know, it's really not the right tradition what Hanukkah celebrates the, you know, the destruction, the restoration of the, the temple. But so that what didn't really work. And then my partner, who's Jewish, Shan, she said, "What about Shalom Aleichem?" And uh, which is a all oh, it's a it's sung all year round. It's it's a everyday song, I guess. It's sung on Shabbat, at, uh, Friday nights, and the verses translate to peace, kings, and angels. So I thought, ah, that's a really good fit. And the melody, the melody, you know, was carol-like. So I thought well, that's going to work. So. Then I approached Lior, <laughs> you know, approaching both Walid and Lior and saying, hey, do you want to be in my Christmas record? <laughs> there was, uh, you know, we had to do, well, not so much coaxing, I guess, but we needed to do, have, have a lot of discussion back and forth about how it would work and how I imagined it. They were really good sports. They came to the party. I mean, Lior sings so beautifully. And then it's a wonderful vocal arrangement done by Alice Keith, who he sings on it as well. And Waleed reads, reads those verses like he's reading a bedtime story. Mm. I love it. Mm. it. They're both beautiful. The whole album is really beautiful, and, and it kind of strikes me hearing you talk about it, particularly when you said they both came to the party. It's almost like the album itself is like what an Australian Christmas should be. There's all these different 
parts to it. There's there's people. There's the core. There's the the carols. There's the tradition. Then there's just the the people that are there for the for the summer, for the heat, for that story. And then you've got maybe someone's Muslim cousin or Jewish partner, and and they're all there in a room together. And that's kind of what I love about it. It's like we said at the start of this conversation. What Christmas and summer can mean in Australia is so much more beautiful and poetic and magical than just this story of the nativity and sitting on a stone bench in a, in a church on mass. Yeah. Um, that, that's, uh, you summed it up very well. That's a, the, the record. I hadn't thought of it quite like that. I mean, that, uh, it's, I just wanted to um, open, open, up, open up Christmas. It's a, it is a, it is, to me, it's a very open, wide tradition, and uh, I thought the record should reflect that. And we are gearing up for Christmas. I wonder what you're looking forward to right now. I know that you're a big cricket fan, as am I. You're going to head to the Boxing Day Test, scene of the Ashes. What what are you what are you looking forward to? Uh, definitely, I used to like to go on you know day two or three because um, Boxing Day is pretty full on at, at, at the ground for me now. But I I do have, there's a tradition now. It's about ten years old now. I go to my friend Billy Miller's place, who is a musician and. We play music together for fun, and we also, you know, write songs occasionally. And he said, "Big, big Test cricket nut." So, go over to Billy's and his family, watch it there. Maybe a couple of others. Um, one of my nephews will come this year with me. I've often thought that the Boxing Day Test is one of the smartest things that this country ever invented because you've got these family Christmases where everyone's together, and you know, like like we were saying, hopefully it all goes well, but sometimes there's a bit of tension. And the second day, there's just, you know, eight hours of cricket to watch and it just cuts through it all. You can't fight. You can't get into any arguments because the cricket transfixes everyone. And, you know, it's the, be- it's the best way to, um, you know, to work off, you know, the excess of Christmas and yeah, or you always eat maybe a little too much or drink too much or, or whatever. But so the next day, you can just like, you don't have to do anything. You can, you always have to do is like sit on the couch and watch cricket i mean the beauty of chess cricket is is it's so long <laughs> i can't wait you've got me really excited for both <laughs> summer uh for everything for summer for christmas for cricket paul thank you so much for all the time you gave me to talk about the record how to make gravy and just what it means to be an australian on christmas time thank you my pleasure osmond thanks thanks for the chat That was the final episode of The Culture for 2021. Just want to say a big thank you to everyone who listened to and supported the show this year. The response has been overwhelming and it really, really means a lot. During the summer break, we're going to be dropping a couple of special bonus episodes highlighting the best TV shows and films of 2021. Please check them out. The Culture is produced by Alex Gao, Bez Zoda and Atticus Basto. Our editor-in-chief is Eric Jensen, and our theme music is by Hermitude. I'm Osman Faruqi. Happy holidays, and see you next year.